Good morning, Crosswalk. Happy Sabbath. Welcome to worship. We're excited to have you guys here. Um, and uh, it's good for me to be back here in our podium uh, to speak with you after a couple of weeks of, I'll admit it, poor to mediocre preaching. <laughs> Sam Lenore is okay. Pastor Tim Gillespie, he's, he's okay. But it's good to be back. No, uh, it was great to have them. It's always good for me to host uh, my brothers when they come and preach. Uh, and to be able to be mesmerized by Sam's wispy hair um, and just drawn in. Uh, but Sam preached to us about, uh, under the momentum theme, he talked about the importance of us running this race that we're in together, the race of faith, that we were made for community, by community, and so we need each other on this faith journey. And then Tim, last week, talked about the importance of forgiveness in our journey so that we can continue to move, because if we don't forgive, we hold on to anger and resentment and bitterness. And when we hold on to those things, then we can't hold on to the things which matter most, which is faith, hope, and love, with the greatest of those being love. So this week, we are in our fifth week of our Momentum series, and we get to talk this week about what is usually a fan-favorite topic. This week, we talk about sin. <laughs> Who's excited? Oh, put your hands down. No, sin has much to do with hindering our momentum, whether we are talking about our journeys as individual believers and followers of Christ, or we're talking about our community of faith, the body of Christ, moving together to follow the Spirit. And when I think about sin and our sinful nature and the hold it seems to have on us, I think of all sorts of kind of different stories, analogies, and metaphors that come to mind. But the one that perhaps keeps coming to mind for me is a confrontation I once had with a squatter. Uh, I don't know if you've ever had the privilege, but for a period of time, uh, I worked at Walla Walla University with uh, really four, it was one job with four different parts. It was part chaplain, for a time, part chaplain, part student activities director, part residence hall dean, and part landlord. Uh, and mostly all crazy. And the part of that that I loved the most was being a landlord. And when I say love, I mean hate. And when I say hate, I mean that it was the worst part of a job I'd ever had in my entire life. And for three and a half years in high school, I cleaned toilets in a hospital. So, being a landlord meant all sorts of things, including dealing with difficult and awkward situations. So, one of those involved a squatter we had in one of our residents. He was the son of an older student that we had, an older social work student. That's pretty common at Walla Walla. Um, and her son came to live with her for a while, but then she graduated, and we're only allowed to house current students. Once they graduate, we're no longer allowed to house them. And so, they both needed to move on, but she left and he stayed. Uh, so we let him know with all the appropriate uh, messaging that he needed to leave by a certain date. And we said, by this date, we're going to have to come in and change the locks, whether his stuff is gone or not, and on and on. And, and so the day came, we went to change the locks, the maintenance team, and he wasn't there. His stuff still was, but he wasn't there, so we changed the locks and went about business. The next day, somebody from the maintenance team went to go and... Uh, inspect the place to see what had to be done to put someone new in there. And when he went, the door unlocked, but he couldn't open it. 
there was something behind the door. And then he heard the person inside, but the person wouldn't say anything and wouldn't come to the door. So the next thing you have to do in a situation like this is you have to call the police. So I called the police. I explained that we had a squatter. We needed to trespass them according to the law. And uh, the person on the phone said, no problem. We'll send a police officer right over. I'm like, oh, great. This is, you know, check, all done. And then the person said something that surprised me. They said, the officer will meet you there so that together you can trespass them. And I said, meet us? Meet me there? Why, why, why me? And, and they're like, well, we need someone who's a representative of the owner to be there. And my, that was my job as landlord. And so I said, oh, okay. See, there's a problem. And I know the problem. The problem is that I am not an intimidating person. I may be tall, but that's about it. Even my kids, when I go to make a mean face, they laugh at me. That's how this works. So I didn't know what I was going to add to the situation, but I went, I got there, the police officer was already there, he gets out of the car, and he's like, oh, you're Patty McCoy. And I'm like, y- 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 yes, officer, yes I-, yes, I am. And he said, oh, no, uh, let me, he said, uh, he was a former principal of one of the local Adventist schools, and now he's a police officer, but when he was a principal of one of the Adventist schools, he had me come when I was a student at Walla Walla, and I did a week of prayer, and he said, I really loved your week of prayer. You did such, so great with the kids. I said, oh, thanks, man. I, somehow, you know, I felt a little better. We had some common ground, and then he's like, let's go, and I said, you first, <laughs> and so, so I used him as my human shield, you know, walked behind, and he knocked on the door, and it was just like, you know, the TV show. He's like, College Place Police Department, open up. And, uh, and as soon as he knocked, suddenly the sound of a very large dog barking began. Uh, and then, in moments, the person, the squatter, was at the door. He opened it just a crack, enough to realize that he was wearing cut-off jean shorts and nothing else. So that was going on. The dog was barking in the background. The only thing that was missing was the soundtrack, bad boys, bad boys. What you gonna do? What you gonna do when they come? You know? So... <laughs> He, he, the, the, the squatter was high or, you know, just not all there or something because he didn't seem to understand what the police officer was saying. Um, and then the police officer started using some language that I'm pretty sure he probably didn't use as an Adventist principal. <laughs> I could be wrong, but, uh, you know. Um, and then all of a sudden the squatter bolted and he ran for it. And the police officer started to chase him and he said, Patty, go inside and check and make sure that no one else is there. what? <laughs> what am I going to, I wanted to yell at him, but I said, no, you, you forgot, I speak to children about Jesus. I don't, I don't confront criminals. But, but against my every instinct, I went in the house and I started checking the rooms, and there was no one there. There was one last room where the door was shut. Of course, I opened the door and, with, and then see the 200-pound German shepherd running at the door and I close it in time to get his head in the door, which made him, of course, like, you know, like he was startled and stopped. And then I closed the door. And within about 20 minutes, the police officer had the dog in a kennel and the, uh, the squatter in his car to go to the police department so he could be processed while I went home to change my pants. <laughs> ah, still gets me. Um, but... This, this, this situation, um, this thinking about a squatter, it is so much what it feels like when I think about sin. 
I mean, in one way, we surrender our lives to Jesus, right? And when we do that, sin no longer has a place in us. We evict it from our lives. We've asked Jesus to sit on the throne of our lives, banishing sin from taking up residence. But then we come to realize that we have an awfully hard time getting sin to leave. It squats, it sticks around, and it continues to cause us grief and make us wonder if we've really given our lives over to Christ or if we just thought we did. I mean, we want to live for Christ, but sin keeps following us around and holding us back, keeping us from growing, keeping us from moving forward and feeling as if we found that freedom in Christ that Paul talks so often about. Well, in this passage we've been going through in our series, it speaks to this. It says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up, and let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. In the Hebrew mindset, sin was a weight. It weighed down on you. So the more sin you had in your life, the heavier the burden it was that you carried around with you. And you see this even today. People weighed down by the sins and the struggles in their life. So Paul was saying that we must strip off this weight of sin because it's keeping us from the life that God wants for us to live, that God calls for us to live, a life where we learn to live freely and lightly in the unforced rhythms of grace. And as important as it is to forgive others, as Pastor Tim spoke about last week, if you're anything like me, sometimes the hardest person to forgive is yourself, right? You know better. There, there, there's things that you do that you know you, you just, it's not good for you, it's not good for other people, and yet you still do those, and Paul talks about this elsewhere in Romans 7, a famous passage. He says, and I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my sinful nature. I want to do what is right, but I can't. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. But if I do what I don't want to do, I am not really the one doing wrong. It is sin living in me that does it. I have discovered this principle of life, that when I want to do what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. I love God's law with all my heart, but there is another power within me that is at war with my mind. This power makes me a slave to the sin that is still within me. Oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? Now, there's much going on in this passage, but at the most basic level, Paul is talking about a struggle that we all know about all too well. As followers of Jesus, we desire to do what is good. We want to make good decisions for ourselves and for others, but there is this war that makes us struggle. When I read Romans 7, I think to myself, okay, Paul gets me. In this passage, Paul Paul gets me. I I don't know about you or your story. I was baptized when I was 10 years old. Um, Some people think that was young, um, and rest assured, I did not know all the doctrines of the church, but I knew this. I knew Jesus loved me. I knew that Jesus died for me on the cross. I believed that with all my heart, and I knew I wanted to live the rest of my life for him, so I got baptized. So check those poxes, we go down in the water. Um, but I had this idea in my 10-year-old head that, you know, when, when that happened, when I was baptized, I wouldn't want to sin anymore. After all, Paul said, and, and I learned this in my baptismal class, anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone, a new life has begun. And I'll be honest, when I came up out of the water, I felt amazing. 
I mean, if, if you've made that decision, you've gone through that, there's something beautiful about that moment. I came up out of that water, and I felt like a new creation. And it was amazing. Until I got home, and later that evening, my brothers and I got into a fight, and I remember to this day, I called my brother, well, I called him a name. And, and, and apparently, it was a bad word. Um, and in my house, when you said a bad word, uh, you got your mouth washed out with soap. Anybody? Had that experience? It worked for uh, two out of the three brothers because my middle brother actually liked the taste of soap. He's, yeah, we've had him checked out. Um, but, but the thing is, I remember calling him this name and then I was arguing with my mom because I was sure I made the word up. I didn't know where I had heard it. But I sat there and I thought when everything really started to settle in is that no matter how hard I tried, I couldn't even be a new creation for a full day. So if Paul in Romans 7 was talking about our present human experience and struggling with sin even after we give our lives to Christ, then what does happen to us when we give our life to Christ? What changes? How do we strip off every weight that slows us down and the sin that so easily trips us up so that we can continue to move and grow in Christ? Well, I think it is possible to live differently under the banner of Christ. Otherwise, I wouldn't have any hope. But there are two things, at least, that we must recognize. One, when we surrender to Christ, the change that takes place in us is that sin no longer defines us. Jesus does. We move from being wretched sinners to children of the living God. It means we are no longer under sin's control, even though we still struggle with its impulses and temptations. As John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, once said, sin remains, but it no longer reigns. We still fall, yes, but as Paul goes on to say in Romans 7 and then chapter 8, oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? Thank God the answer is in Jesus Christ our Lord. There is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus, and because you belong to him, the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. But how do we live into the freedom that Christ has to offer? How do we lean into the power of the life-giving spirit that frees us from the power of sin that leads to death? Well, Paul gives us that answer too in Hebrews. The verse goes on to say, it says, we strip off every weight that slows us down and the sin that so easily trips us up by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. So, too, we keep our eyes on Jesus. The Greek word for keep your eyes is aphorao, and it means to take your eyes off of one thing and put them on to something else. So it's assuming that our eyes are on something else. And in this context, in the context of our struggle with sin, our eyes are on our sins, our struggles, our imperfections, our faults, or... They're on the sins and faults and imperfections of others. And we have to remove our gaze from those things and put them onto Christ because when sin is our focus, sin has control over us and no matter how hard we try, we can't get out from under its power. There is a story that Benjamin Franklin once had this idea that he was going to rid himself of his sins, and so he sat down and he made a list of every sin in his life. 
I don't know how long the list was, 20, 30, 40, 50, whatever it was, one by one, he started to go through and rid himself of his sin. The only problem was, there were two problems. The first problem was, by the time he got to the sixth or seventh sin, he started doing number one again. And the other problem was, he didn't really like the person he was during this time. Have you noticed this? Have you noticed that people who try to be sinless, who seek perfection, who emphasize purity and hiding away from the evils of the world are sometimes the most mean and judgmental people you ever meet? It's because of our focus. It's because everything incarnates. We become what we focus on. Several weeks ago, we talked about grace, the unmerited favor of God, and how it is truly and sadly one of the hardest things for people to accept. We said that the notion of God's love coming to us free of charge, no strings attached, is so unlike anything else in this world. The Buddhist eightfold path, the Hindu, Hindu doctrine of karma, the Jewish covenant, the Muslim code of law, each of these offers a way to earn approval. In fact, author Philip Yancey in his book, What's So Amazing About Grace, said, that grace seems to go against every instinct of humanity and that we are naturally drawn to cause and effect, to earning what we receive. Everything in our world is about earning favor. We earn our reputations, we earn our wages, we earn our education and our accolades, we earn our possessions, and in the ancient world, a person's core purpose was to win the favor of their gods, to honor them, and you did that by earning their favor. If you didn't earn their favor, catastrophes ensued, and we still fight this ideology today. In fact, the other day I was scrolling through a Facebook group. Do, do, you, have, do you have groups that you're a part of that like, you regularly think you should stop being a part of them? This is one of those for me. It's the Adventist Pro Professional Ministers page. And... and <laughs> I know, it's just that there are times when I'm on there and like, oh, that's interesting, and there's other times where I'm like, what, 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 what are we wrestling with, what are we talking about, and, and last Sabbath was one of those days I was looking, and there was someone who apparently had preached a sermon about the grace of God and the goodness of God, and then somebody got onto Facebook, uh, someone who had heard that message and was attacking them, and this pastor, and that's one of the functions of the group is to kind of, you know, find community and, and remember you're not alone, especially when you're getting attacked, um, but this person uh, made a comment and, uh, about their sermon, and he references something called LGT. Not to be confused with LGBTQ+, but LGT, which is short for Last Generation Theology. Though there are a whole slew of people who believe in this wholeheartedly, the core idea, which most of it is explained in the post I'll share, but it's this idea that it is up to us to become a perfect generation, and when there is this perfect generation, then Jesus will come. Because, because we control whether or not God comes back to earth. So, though there are people that are full on into this, there are bits and pieces of this all throughout different streams of Adventist practice and belief. The post sums it up all too well. It reads, LGT is actually the correct SDA theology. Salvation is not bestowed, it is deserved. Human efforts play a part. What happened at the cross is simply half the process. Hmm. What remains is the human cooperation and that alone. Any theology that says that faith alone or grace alone justifies or saves a sinner is a lazy theology. 
God always requires cooperation because he knows man can. Here, there is no such thing as Jesus doing things for us or the Holy Spirit's inward operation or grace. It is purely human effort, human power to overcome sin, and God expects that from us because he knows we can. (sighs) Doesn't that make you feel good? He knows you can overcome. It just makes my blood... This kind of theology imprisons far too many people, keeping them from experiencing the freedom in Christ. It minimizes the cross of Christ and says, thanks Jesus for your incredible sacrifice, but it only gets me this far. The rest of it is up to me. Christ was only part of the equation. The obvious focus here is on self and what we do and not on Christ and what he did. I guarantee you this kind of message wasn't what won countless people over to the gospel of Jesus Christ. You kidding? Try harder. Do more. And maybe, maybe you'll be good enough. That's the message of the world. And the crazy thing is, no matter how hard you try, it just isn't enough which is why the gospel was so transformative and irresistible, because finally it was a message that wasn't about me. Because I am not enough, but Jesus is. The gospel of Jesus Christ is so amazing because it's otherworldly. It was a message no one else in the world was saying. You mean God loves me unconditionally, and he did so before the world began? before I was formed in the womb and before I took my first breath? And you mean to tell me that God sent his one and only son, Jesus, to die for me even though he knew the things I would do? He really loves me that much? And the answer is yes, yes, yes. It is, amen. It is amazing and heartbreaking to me to think of how many people are scared of and struggle to accept God's grace as it is. They're afraid that if people fully embrace the simple gospel, they'll end up abusing the grace of God. But again, there are two problems with this belief. One, it's based on fear, and two, it focuses, continues to be on us, what we do instead of what Christ has done. One of the founders of the Adventist faith, Ellen White, went through her own journey from fear-based faith to surrendering to the gospel of Jesus Christ, and it's a journey that we need to pay attention to. You see, for the first part of her life, Ellen White believed in what was the common doctrine of hell, a place of eternal damnation where people are sent to burn forever for a few years that they lived on this earth and didn't choose God. In fact, Ellen White often lost sleep at night, sweating with anxiety over the thought of failing to meet God's standards and being thrown into the fires of hell. But Ellen wasn't just scared of hell. She was also scared of a tyrant God who would burn people forever as a punishment for their short life. She loved Jesus, but God was an entirely different picture she had. So she was scared of hell, she was scared of God, and she focused on how to be good enough to stay out of hell, but far enough from God. In a conversation she had with her mom late in her teens, her mom told her that she was questioning the doctrine of hell as it had been understood, that it seemed inconsistent with a God of love. 
Ellen's first response to this idea was again, fear. If people didn't have the fear of hell to scare them into repentance, she thought they'd never repent. But over time, God rescued Ellen from the misunderstood doctrine of hell and helped her realize that God and Jesus are one and the same. Helped her realize that God has no intention of torturing anyone for an eternity. She realized God and, and uh, she realized that Jesus is the real truth and the simple gospel is where it's at. It was then that Ellen came to realize that love was a better motivator than fear. That the fruit produced from people who truly received God's grace was better than those who lived under the fear of trying to appease God and earn their salvation. So when you truly understand the love of God, when you surrender your life completely to him, confessing your sins and receiving his grace, then sin is no longer the identifying mark in your life. When you realize there is nothing you can do to make God love you more and nothing you can do to make God love you less, when you are safe and secure in the arms of Christ, then you live your life not controlled by sin, but by the power of the Holy Spirit living in you. And when sin rears its ugly head, you confess it and move on, knowing that Jesus paid for your sins and nailed them to the cross. And if you're still holding on to them, it's because you've taken them back. So let us fix our eyes on Jesus. Let us remove our gaze from our sins and shortcomings and let us live each day recognizing that in every season of life, God's grace is enough. The cross is enough. And when our focus is always and forever on Jesus, we know that the best is yet to come. Let us pray. Oh, Jesus. I know that I struggle. That there are things that I want to do that I don't do and things I don't want to do that I do. And that struggle trips me up at times. But I also know that that struggle is the very reason you came to this earth. You entered our mess and you gave your life on that cross so that we could be ruled by you and not by our sin that we could live lives freely and lightly in the unforced rhythms of grace. We need your help to do it. We need your grace, your forgiveness. We need your help to help us take our eyes off of our sins and our imperfections or those of others and just keep focused on you because when we can do that, when we can stay focused on you, we can move in the movement and the momentum of the Holy Spirit, both as individuals but also as a body. We know we are a body called to move, to impact the people around us with the love and the grace that is truly otherworldly. So help us live into the power of the Holy Spirit, keeping our eyes on you, the author and perfecter of our faith, until that day comes when we can look into your eyes as you wipe the tears from ours, and then we get to rest in your embrace forever. Can't wait for that day. Until then, Lord Jesus, help us to live into your grace. In the precious and holy and powerful name of Jesus, we pray these things.